Chapter 5 The Enchanted Violin Christine Daillet, owing to intrigues to which I will return later, did not immediately continue her triumph at the opera. After the famous gala night she sang once at the Duchess de Zurich's, but this was the last occasion on which she was heard in private. She refused, without plausible excuse, to appear at a charity concert to which she had promised her assistance. She acted throughout as though she were no longer the mistress of her own destiny, and as though she feared a fresh triumph. She knew that the Comte de Chagny, to please his brother, had done his best on her behalf with Monsieur Richard, and she wrote to thank him, and also to ask him to cease speaking in her favor. Her reason for this curious attitude was never known. Some pretended that it was due to overweening pride, others spoke of her heavenly modesty. But people on the stage are not so modest as all that, and I think I shall not be far from the truth if I ascribe her actions simply to fear. Yes, I believe that Christine Daae was frightened by what had happened to her. I have a letter of Christine. It forms part of the Persian's collections, relating to this period, which suggests a feeling of absolute dismay. I don't know myself when I sing, writes the poor child. She showed herself nowhere, and the Vicomte de Chagny tried in vain to meet her. He wrote to her, asking to call upon her, but despaired of receiving a reply, when one morning she sent him the following note. Monsieur, I have not forgotten the little boy who went into the sea to rescue my scarf. I feel that I must write to you today, when I am going to Peros, in fulfillment of a sacred duty. Tomorrow is the anniversary of the death of my poor father, whom you knew and who was very fond of you. He is buried there with his violin in the graveyard of the little church at the bottom of the slope where we used to play as children, beside the road where, when we were a little older, we said goodbye for the last time. The Vicomte de Chagny hurriedly consulted a railway guide, dressed as quickly as he could, wrote a few lines for his valet to take to his brother, and jumped into a cab which brought him to the Gare Montparnasse just in time to miss the morning train. He spent a dismal day in town and did not recover his spirits until that evening, when he was seated in his compartment in the Brittany Express. He read Christine's note over and over again, smelling its perfume, recalling the sweet pictures of his childhood, and spent the rest of that tedious night journey in feverish dreams that began and ended with Christine Daillet. Day was breaking when he alighted at Lannion. He hurried to the bus for Peros Gerek. He was the only passenger. He questioned the driver and learned that on the evening of the previous day a young lady who looked like a Parisian had gone to Peros and put up at an inn known as the Setting Sun. The nearer he drew to her, the more fondly he remembered the story of the little Swedish singer. Most of the details are still unknown to the public. There was once, in a little market town, not far from Uppsala, a peasant who lived there with his family, digging the earth during the week and singing in the choir on Sundays. This peasant had a little daughter to whom he taught the musical alphabet before she knew how to read. Daye's father was a great musician, 
perhaps without knowing it. Not a fiddler throughout the length and breadth of Scandinavia played as he did. His reputation was widespread, and he was always invited to set the couples dancing at weddings and other festivals. His wife died when Christine was entering upon her sixth year. Then the father, who cared only for his daughter and his music, sold his patch of ground and went to Uppsala in search of fame and fortune. He found nothing but poverty. He returned to the country, wandering from fair to fair, strumming his Scandinavian melodies while his child, who never left his side, listened to him in ecstasy or sang to his playing. One day, at Liem de Fair, Professor Valerius heard them and took them to Gothenburg. He maintained that the father was the first violinist in the world and that the daughter had the making of a great artist. Her education and instruction were provided for. She made rapid progress and charmed everybody with her prettiness, her grace of manner, and her genuine eagerness to please. When Valerius and his wife went to settle in France, they took Daye and Christine with them. Mama Valerius treated Christine as her daughter. As for Daye, he began to pine away with homesickness. He never went out of doors in Paris, but lived in a sort of dream which he kept up with his violin. For hours at a time, he remained locked up in his bedroom with his daughter, fiddling and singing very, very softly. Sometimes Mama Valerius would come and listen behind the door, wipe away a tear, and go downstairs again on tiptoe, sighing for her Scandinavian skies. Daye seemed not to recover his strength until the summer, when the whole family went to stay at Peros Girek, in a faraway corner of Brittany, where the sea was of the same color as in his own country. Often he would play his saddest tunes on the beach and pretend that the sea stopped its roaring to listen to them. And then he induced Mama Valerius to indulge a queer whim of his. At the time of the pardons, or Breton pilgrimages, the village festival and dances, he went off with his fiddle as in the old days and was allowed to take his daughter with him for a week. They gave the smallest hamlets music to last them for a year, and slept at night in a barn, refusing a bed at the inn, lying close together on the straw as when they were so poor in Sweden. At the same time, they were very neatly dressed, made no collection, refused the pennies offered them, and the people around could not understand the conduct of this rustic fiddler who tramped the roads with that pretty child who sang like an angel from heaven. They followed them from village to village. One day a little boy, who was out with his governess, made her take a longer walk than she intended, for he could not tear himself from the little girl whose pure sweet voice seemed to bind him to her. They came to the shore of an inland which is still called Trestraou, but which now, I believe, harbors a casino or something of the sort. At that time there was nothing but sky and sea and a stretch of golden beach. Only there was also a high wind which blew Christine's scarf out to sea. Christine gave a cry and put out her arms, but the scarf was already far on the waves. Then she heard a voice say, It's all right. I'll go and fetch your scarf out of the sea. And she saw a little boy running fast 
in spite of the outcries and the indignant protests of a worthy lady in black. The little boy ran into the sea, dressed as he was, and brought her back her scarf. Boy and scarf were both soaked through. The lady in black made a great fuss, but Christine laughed merrily and kissed the little boy, who was none other than the Vicomte Raoul de Chagny, staying at Lannion with his aunt. During this season they saw each other and played together almost every day. At the aunt's request, seconded by Professor Valerius, Daye consented to give the young Vicomte some violin lessons. In this way, Raoul learned to love the same airs that had charmed Christine's childhood. They also both had the same calm and dreamy little cast of mind. They delighted in stories, in old Breton legends, and their favorite sport was to go and ask for them at the cottage doors, like beggars. Ma'am, or a kind gentleman, have you a little story to tell us, please? And it seldom happened that they did not have one given them, for nearly every old Breton grandam has, at least once in her life, seen the corrigans dance by moonlight on the heather. But their great treat was in the twilight, in the great silence of the evening, after the sun had set in the sea, when Daye came and sat down with them on the roadside, and in a low voice, as though fearing lest he should frighten the ghosts whom he evoked, told them the legends of the land of the north. And the moment he stopped, the children would ask for more. There was one story that began, A king sat in a little boat on one of those deep still lakes that open like a bright eye in the midst of the Norwegian mountains. And another, Little Lottie thought of everything and nothing. Her hair was golden as the sun's rays, and her soul as clear and blue as her eyes. She teased her mother, was kind to her doll, took great care of her frock, and her little red shoes, and her fiddle, but most of all loved, when she went to sleep, to hear the angel of music. While the old man told this story, Raoul looked at Christine's blue eyes and golden hair, and Christine thought that Lottie was very lucky to hear the angel of music when she went to sleep. The angel of music played a part in all of Daddy Daye's tales, and he maintained that every great musician Every great artist received a visit from the angel at least once in his life. Sometimes the angel leans over their cradle, as happened to Lottie, and that is how there are little prodigies who play the fiddle at six better than men at fifty, which, you must admit, is very wonderful. Sometimes the angel comes much later because the children are naughty and won't learn their lessons or practice their scales. And sometimes he does not come at all, because the children do not have a pure heart nor a clear conscience. No one ever sees the angel, but he is heard by those who are meant to hear him. He often comes when they least expect him, when they are sad and disheartened. Then their ears suddenly perceive celestial harmonies, a divine voice which they remember all their lives. Persons who are visited by the angel quiver with a thrill unknown to the rest of mankind, and they cannot touch an instrument or open their mouths to sing without producing sounds that put all other human sounds to shame. 
Then people who do not know that the angel has visited those persons say that they have genius. Little Christine asked her father if he had heard the angel of music, but Daddy Daye shook his head sadly, and then his eyes lit up as he said, You will hear him one day, my child. When I am in heaven, I will send him to you. Daddy was beginning to cough at that time. Three years later, Raoul and Christine met again at Perros. Professor Valerius was dead, but his widow remained in France with Daddy Daye and his daughter, who continued to play the violin and sing, wrapping in their dream of harmony their kind patroness, who seemed henceforth to live on music alone. The young man, as he now was, had come to Perros on the chance of finding them, and went straight to the house in which they used to stay. He first saw the old man, and then Christine entered, carrying a tea tray. She flushed at the sight of Raoul, who went up to her and kissed her. She asked him a few questions, performed her duties as hostess prettily, took up the tray again, and left the room. Then she ran into the garden and took refuge on a bench, a prey to feelings that stirred her young heart for the first time. Raoul followed her, and they talked till the evening, very shyly. They were quite changed, cautious as two diplomatists, and told each other things that had nothing to do with their budding sentiments. When they took leave of each other by the roadside, Raoul, pressing a kiss on Christine's trembling hand, said, Mademoiselle, I shall never forget you. And he went away regretting his words, for he knew that Christine could not be the wife of the Vicomte de Chagny. As for Christine, she tried not to think of him and devoted herself wholly to her art. She made wonderful progress, and those who heard her prophesied that she would be the greatest singer in the world. Meanwhile, the father died, and suddenly she seemed to have lost with him her voice, her soul, and her genius. She retained just, but only just, enough of this to enter the conservatoire, where she did not distinguish herself at all, attending the classes without enthusiasm, and taking a prize only to please old Mama Valerius, with whom she continued to live. The first time that Raoul saw Christine at the opera, he was charmed by the girl's beauty, and with the sweet images of the past which it evoked but was rather surprised at the negative side of her art. He returned to listen to her. He followed her in the wings. He waited for her behind a piece of scenery. He tried to attract her attention. More than once he walked after her to the door of her dressing room, but she did not see him. She seemed, for that matter, to see nobody. She was all indifference. Raoul suffered, for she was very beautiful and he was shy and dared not confess his love even to himself. And then came the lightning flash of the gala performance. The heavens torn asunder, and an angel's voice heard upon earth for the delight of mankind and the utter capture of his heart. And then, and then there was that man's voice behind the door. You must love me, and no one in the room. Why did she laugh when he reminded her of the incident of the scarf? 
Why did she not recognize him? And why had she written to him? Peros was reached at last. Raoul walked into the smoky sitting-room of the setting sun and at once saw Christine standing before him, smiling and showing no astonishment. So you have come, she said. I felt that I should find you here when I came back from Mass. Someone told me so at the church. Who, asked Raoul, taking her hand in his. Why, my poor father, who is dead. There was a silence, and then Raoul asked, Did your father tell you that I love you, Christine, and that I cannot live without you? Christine blushed to the eyes and turned away her head. In a trembling voice she said, Me? You are dreaming, my friend. And she burst out laughing to put herself in countenance. Don't laugh, Christine. I am quite serious, Raoul answered. And she replied gravely, I did not make you come to tell me such things as that. You made me come, Christine. You knew that your letter would not leave me indifferent, and that I should hasten to Perros. How can you have thought that if you did not think I love you? I thought you would remember our games here as children in which my father so often joined. I really don't know what I thought. Perhaps I was wrong to write to you. Your sudden appearance in my room at the opera the other evening reminded me of the time long past and made me write to you as the little girl that I then was. There was something in Christine's attitude that seemed to Raoul not natural. He did not feel any hostility in her, far from it. The distressed affection shining in her eyes told him that. But why was this affection distressed? That was what he wished to know and what was irritating him. When you saw me in your dressing-room, was that the first time you noticed me, Christine? She was incapable of lying. No, she said. I had seen you several times in your brother's box, and also on the stage. I thought so, said Raoul, compressing his lips. But then why, when you saw me in your room, at your feet, reminding you that I had rescued your scarf from the sea, why did you answer as though you did not know me? And also, why did you laugh? The tone of these questions was so rough that Christine stared at Raoul without replying. The young man himself was aghast at the sudden quarrel which he had dared to raise at the very moment when he had resolved to speak words of gentleness, love, and submission to Christine. A husband, a lover with all rights, would talk no differently to a wife, a mistress who had offended him. But he had gone too far and saw no other way out of the ridiculous position than to behave odiously. "'You don't answer,' he said angrily and unhappily. "'Well, I will answer for you. It was because there was someone in the room who was in your way, Christine, someone that you did not wish to know that you could be interested in anyone else.' If anyone was in my way, my friend Christine broke in coldly, if anyone was in my way that evening, it was yourself, since I told you to leave the room. Yes, so that you might remain with the other. What are you saying, monsieur? asked the girl excitedly. And to what other do you refer? To the man to whom you said, I sing only for you. Tonight I gave you my soul, and I am dead. Christine seized Raoul's arm and clutched it with a strength which no one would have suspected in so frail a creature. 
then you were listening behind the door. Yes, because I love you, and I heard everything. You heard what? And the young girl, becoming strangely calm, released Raoul's arm. He said to you, Christine, you must love me. At these words, a deathly pallor spread over Christine's face. Dark rings formed round her eyes. She staggered and seemed on the point of swooning. Raoul darted forward, with arms outstretched, but Christine had overcome her passing faintness and said in a low voice, Go on. Go on. Tell me all you heard. At an utter loss to understand, Raoul answered, I heard him reply when you said you had given him your soul. Your soul is a beautiful thing, child, and I thank you. No emperor ever received so fair a gift. The angels wept tonight. Christine carried her hand to her heart, a prey to indescribable emotion. Her eyes stared before her like a madwoman's. Raoul was terror-stricken. But suddenly Christine's eyes moistened, and two great tears trickled like two pearls down her ivory cheeks. Christine! Raoul! The young man tried to take her in his arms, but she escaped and fled in great disorder. While Christine remained locked in her room, Raoul was at his wit's end what to do. He refused to breakfast. He was terribly concerned and bitterly grieved to see the hours which he had hoped to find so sweet slip past without the presence of the young Swedish girl. Why did she not come to Rome with him through the country where they had so many memories in common? He heard that she had had a mass said that morning for the repose of her father's soul and spent a long time praying in the little church and on the fiddler's tomb. Then, as she seemed to have nothing more to do at Perros, and, in fact, was doing nothing there, why did she not go back to Paris at once? Raoul walked away dejectedly to the graveyard in which the church stood, and was indeed alone among the tombs reading the inscriptions, but when he turned behind the apse, he was suddenly struck with a dazzling note of the flowers that straggled over the white ground. They were marvelous red roses that had blossomed in the morning in the snow, giving a glimpse of life among the dead, for death was all around him. It also, like the flowers, issued from the ground, which had flung back a number of its corpses. Skeletons and skulls but a hundred were heaped against the wall of the church, held in position by a wire that left the whole gruesome stack visible. Dead men's bones arranged in rows like bricks to form the first course upon which the walls of the sacristy had been built. The door of the sacristy opened in the middle of that bony structure as is often seen in old Breton churches. Raoul said a prayer for Daye, and then painfully impressed by all those eternal smiles on the mouths of skulls, he climbed the slope and sat down on the edge of the heath overlooking the sea. The wind fell with the evening. Raoul was surrounded by icy darkness, but he did not feel the cold. It was here, he remembered, that he used to come with little Christine to see the Corrigans dance at the rising of the moon. He had never seen any, though his eyes were good, 
whereas Christine, who was a little short-sighted, pretended that she had seen many. He smiled at the thought, and then suddenly gave a start. A voice behind him said, Do you think the Corrigans will come this evening? It was Christine. He tried to speak. She put her gloved hand on his mouth. Listen, Raoul, I have decided to tell you something serious, very serious. Do you remember the legend of the Angel of Music? I do indeed, he said. I believe it was here that your father first told it to us. And it was here that he said, When I am in heaven, my child, I will send him to you. Well, Raoul, my father is in heaven, and I have been visited by the Angel of Music. I have no doubt of it, replied the young man gravely, for it seemed to him that his friend, in obedience to a pious thought, was connecting the memory of her father with the brilliancy of her last triumph. Christine appeared astonished at the Vicomte de Chagny's coolness. How do you understand it, she asked, bringing her pale face so close to his that he might have thought that Christine was going to give him a kiss, but she only wanted to read his eyes in spite of the dark. I can understand, he said, that no human being can sing as you sang the other evening without the intervention of some miracle. No professor on earth can teach you such accents as those. You have heard the angel of music, Christine. Yes, she said solemnly, in my dressing room. That is where he comes to give me my lessons daily. In your dressing room, he echoed stupidly. Yes, that is where I have heard him, and I have not been the only one to hear him. Who else heard him, Christine? You, my friend. I? I heard the angel of music? Yes. The other evening. It was he who was talking when you were listening behind the door. It was he who said, You must love me. But I then thought that I was the only one to hear his voice. Imagine my astonishment when you told me this morning that you could hear him too. Raoul burst out laughing. The first rays of the moon came and shrouded the two young people in their light. Christine turned on Raoul with a hostile air. Her eyes, usually so gentle, flashed fire. What are you laughing at? You think you heard a man's voice, I suppose. Well, replied the young man, whose ideas began to go confused in the face of Christine's determined attitude. It's you, Raoul, who say that? You, an old playfellow of my own? A friend of my father's? But you have changed since those days. What are you thinking of? I am an honest girl, Monsieur le Vicomte de Chagny, and I don't lock myself up in my dressing room with men's voices. If you had opened the door, you would have seen that there was nobody in the room. Well, that's true, Christine. I did open the door when you were gone, and I found no one in the room. So you see. Well? The Vicomte summoned up all his courage. Well, Christine... I think that somebody is playing a joke on you. She gave a cry and ran away. He ran after her, but in the tone of fierce anger she called out, Leave me! Leave me! And she disappeared. Raoul returned to the inn feeling very weary, very low-spirited, and very sad. He was told that Christine had gone to her bedroom saying that she would not be down to dinner. Raoul dined alone in a very gloomy mood. Then he went to his room and tried to read, went to bed and tried to sleep. There was no sound in the next room.
The hours passed slowly. It was about half-past eleven when he distinctly heard someone moving with a light, stealthy step in the room next to his. Then Christine had not gone to bed. Without troubling for a reason, Raoul dressed, taking care not to make a sound, and waited. Waited for what? How could he tell? But his heart thumped in his chest when he heard Christine's door turn slowly on its hinges. Where could she be going at this hour when everyone was fast asleep at Perros? Softly opening the door, he saw Christine's white form in the moonlight slipping along the passage. She went down the stairs, and he leaned over the baluster above her. Suddenly he heard two voices in rapid conversation. He caught one sentence, Don't lose the key. It was the landlady's voice. The door facing the sea was opened and locked again. Then all was still. Raoul ran back to his room and threw open the window. Christine's white form stood on the deserted quay. The first floor of the setting sun was at no great height, and a tree growing against the wall held out its branches to Raoul's impatient arms and enabled him to climb down unknown to the landlady. Her amazement, therefore, was all the greater when the next morning the young man was brought back to her, half-frozen, more dead than alive, and when she learned that he had been found stretched at full length on the steps of the high altar of the little church. She ran at once to tell Christine, who hurried down and, with the help of the landlady, did her best to revive him. He soon opened his eyes and was not long in recovering when he saw his friend's charming face leaning over him. A few weeks later, when the tragedy at the opera compelled the intervention of the public prosecutor, Monsieur Mifroid, the commissioner of police, examined the Vicomte de Chagny touching the events of the night at Perros. I quote the questions and answers as given in the official report. Question. Did Mademoiselle Daae not see you come down from your room by the curious road which you selected? Answer. No, monsieur, no, although uh, when walking behind her I, I took no pains to deaden the sound of my footsteps. In fact, I wanted her to turn around and see me. I realized that I had no excuse for following her and that this way of spying on her was unworthy of me. But she seemed not to hear me and acted exactly as though I were not there. She quietly left the key and then suddenly walked quickly up the road. The church clock had struck a quarter to twelve, and I thought that this must have made her hurry, for she began almost to run and continued hastening until she came to the church. Was the gate opened? Yes, monsieur, and this surprised me, but did not seem to surprise Mademoiselle Daae. Was there no one in the churchyard? I did not see anyone, and if there had been, I must have seen him. The moon was shining on the snow and made the night quite light. Was it possible for anyone to hide behind the tombstones? No, monsieur. They were quite small, poor tombstones, partly hidden under the snow, with their crosses just above the level of the ground. The only shadows were those of the crosses and ourselves. The church stood out quite brightly, 
and I never saw so clear a night. It was very fine and very cold, and one could see everything. Are you at all superstitious? No, monsieur, I am a practicing Catholic. In what condition of mind were you? Very healthy and peaceful, I assure you. Mademoiselle Daillet's curious action in going out at that hour had worried me at first, but as soon as I saw her go to the churchyard, I thought that she meant to fulfill some pious duty on her father's grave, and I considered this so natural that I recovered all my calmness. I was only surprised that she had not heard me walking behind her, for my footsteps were quite audible on the hard snow. But she must have been taken up with her intentions, and I resolved not to disturb her. She knelt down by her father's grave, made the sign of the cross, and began to pray. At that moment it struck midnight. At the last stroke I saw Mademoiselle Daillet lift her eyes to the sky and stretch out her arms as though in ecstasy. I was wondering what the reason could be when I myself raised my head and everything within me seemed drawn toward the invisible, which was playing the most perfect music. Christina and I knew that music. We had heard it as children, but it had never been executed with such divine art, even by Monsieur Daillet. I remembered all that Christine had told me of the angel of music. The air was the resurrection of Lazarus, which old Monsieur Daillet used to play to us in his hours of melancholy and of faith. If Christine's angel had existed, he could not have played better that night on the late musician's violin. When the music stopped, I seemed to hear a noise from the skulls in the heap of bones. It was as though they were chuckling, and I could not help shuddering. Did it not occur to you that the musician might be hiding behind that very heap of bones? It was the one thought that did occur to me, monsieur, uh, so much so that I omitted to follow Mademoiselle Daae when she stood up and walked slowly to the gate. She was so much absorbed just then that I was not surprised that she did not see me. Then what happened that you were found in the morning lying half dead on the steps of a high altar? First, a skull rolled to my feet, then another, then another. It was as if I were the mark of that ghastly game of bowls, and I had an idea that a false step must have destroyed the balance of the structure behind which our musician was concealed. This surmise seemed to be confirmed when I saw a shadow suddenly glide along the sacristy wall. I ran up. The shadow had already pushed open the door and entered the church, but I was quicker than the shadow and caught hold of a corner of its cloak. At that moment we were just in front of the high altar, and the moonbeams fell straight upon us through the stained-glass windows. As I did not let go of the cloak, the shadow turned around, and I saw a terrible death's head, which darted a look at me from a pair of scorching eyes. I felt as if I were face to face with Satan, and in the presence of this unearthly apparition, my heart gave way, my courage failed me, and I remember nothing more until I recovered consciousness at the setting sun. Chapter 6 A Visit to Box Number 5 we left Monsieur Fermin Richard 
and Monsieur Armand Montchardin at the moment when they were deciding to look into that little matter of Box 5. Leaving behind them the broad staircase, which leads from the lobby outside the manager's offices to the stage and its dependencies, they crossed the stage, went out by the subscriber's door, and entered the house through the first little passage on the left. Then they made their way through the front rows of stalls and looked at Box 5 on the grand tier. They could not see it well, because it was half in darkness and because great covers were flung over the red velvet of the ledges of all the boxes. They were almost alone in the huge, gloomy house, and a great silence surrounded them. It was the time when most of the stagehands go out for a drink. The staff had left the stage for the moment, leaving a scene half set. A few rays of light, a wan, sinister light, that seemed to have been stolen from an expiring star, fell through some opening or other upon an old tower that raised its pasteboard battlements on the stage. Everything in this deceptive light adopted a fantastic shape. In the orchestra stalls, the dust sheets covering them looked like an angry sea whose blue-green waves had been suddenly rendered stationary by a secret order from the storm phantom who, as everybody knows, is called Adamastor. Monsieur Moncharmin and Richard were the shipwrecked mariners amid this motionless turmoil of a painted sea. They made for the left boxes, ploughing their way like sailors who leave their ship and try to struggle to the shore. The eight great polished columns stood up in the dusk like so many huge piles supporting the threatening, crumbling, big-bellied cliffs whose layers were represented by the circular parallel waving lines of the balconies of the grand first and second tiers of boxes. At the top, right on top of the cliff, lost in Monsieur Le Nepvue's copper ceiling, figures grinned and grimaced, laughed and jeered at Monsieur Richard and Montcharmin's distress. And yet these figures were usually very serious. Their names were Isis, Amphitrite, Hebe, Pandora, Psyche, Thetis, Pomona, Daphne, Clytie, Galatea, and Arethusa. Yes, Arethusa herself and Pandora, whom we all know by her box, looked down upon the two new managers of the opera, who ended by clutching at some piece of wreckage, and from there stared silently at box five on the grand tier. I have said that they were distressed. At least I presume so. Monsieur Montcharmin, in any case, admits that he was impressed, to quote his own words in his memoirs. This fairy tale about the Phantom of the Opera, in which, since we first took over the duties of Messieurs Poligny and Derbienne, we had been so nicely steeped, Montcharmin's style is not always irreproachable had no doubt ended by blinding my imaginative and also my visual faculties. It may be that the exceptional surroundings in which we found ourselves, in the midst of an incredible silence, impressed us to an unusual extent. It may be that we were the sport of a kind of hallucination, brought about by the semi-darkness of the theatre and the partial gloom that filled Box 5. 
At any rate, I saw, and Richard also saw, a shape in the box. Richard said nothing, nor I either, but we spontaneously seized each other's hand. We stood like that for some minutes, without moving, with our eyes fixed on the same point. But the figure had disappeared. Then we went out, and in the lobby communicated our impressions to each other and talked about the shape. The misfortune was that uh, my shape was not in the least like Richard's. I had seen a thing like a death's head resting on the ledge of the box, whereas Richard saw the shape of an old woman who looked like Madame Giry. We soon discovered that we had really been the victims of an illusion, whereupon, without further delay, and laughing like madmen, we ran to Box 5 on the Grand Tier, went inside, and found no shape of any kind. Box 5 is just like all the other Grand Tier boxes. There is nothing to distinguish it from any of the others. Monsieur Montcharmin and Monsieur Richard, ostensibly highly amused and laughing at each other, moved the furniture of the box, lifted the cloths and the chairs, and particularly examined the armchair in which the man's voice used to sit. But they saw that it was a respectable armchair with no magic about it. Altogether, the box was the most ordinary box in the world, with its red hangings, its chairs, its carpet, and its ledge covered in red velvet. After feeling the carpet in the most serious manner possible, and discovering nothing more here or anywhere else, they went down to the corresponding box on the pit tier below. In box five on the pit tier, which is just inside the first exit from the stalls on the left, they found nothing worth mentioning either. Those people were all making fools of us, Firmin Richard ended by exclaiming, It will be Faust on Saturday. Let us both see the performance from box five on the grand tier. Chapter 7 The Performance of Faust and What Followed On the Saturday morning, on reaching their office, the joint managers found a letter from the Phantom of the Opera worded in these terms. My dear managers, so it is to be war between us? If you still care for peace, here is my ultimatum. It consists of the four following conditions. One, you must give me back my private box, and I wish it to be at my free disposal from henceforward. Two, the part of Marguerite shall be sung this evening by Christine Daillet. Never mind about Carlotta, she will be ill. Three, I absolutely insist upon the good and loyal services of Madame Géry, my box-keeper, whom you will reinstate in her functions forthwith. 4. Let me know by a letter handed to Madame Géry, who will see that it reaches me, that you accept, as your predecessors did, the condition in my book of house rules relating to my monthly allowance. I will inform you later how you are to pay it to me. If you refuse... You will give Faust tonight in a house with a curse upon it. Take my advice and be warned in time. The Phantom of the Opera Look here. I'm getting sick of him. Sick of him, shouted Richard, bringing his fists down on his office table. Just then Mercier, the acting manager, entered. 
La Chanel would like to see one of you gentlemen, he said. He says that his business is urgent and he seems quite upset. Uh, who's La Chanel? asked Richard. He's your stud groom. What do you mean, my stud groom? Yes, sir, explained Mercier. There are several grooms at the opera and Monsieur La Chanel is at the head of them. And what does this groom do? He has the chief management of the stable. What stable? Why, yours, sir, the stable of the opera. Is there a stable at the opera? Upon my word, I didn't know. Where is it? In the cellars, on the rotunda side. It's a very important department. We have twelve horses. Twelve horses? And what for, in heaven's name? Why, we, we want trained horses for the processions in the Juif the Propheta, and so on. Horses used to the stage. Uh, it is the groom's business to teach them. Monsieur Lachanel is very clever at it. He used to manage Franconi's stables. Very well, but what does he want? I don't know. I never saw him in such a state. He can come in. Monsieur Lachanel came in, carrying a riding whip, with which he struck his right boot in an irritable manner. "'Good morning, Monsieur Lachanel,' said Richard, somewhat impressed. "'To what do we owe the honour of your visit?' "'Mr. Manager, I have come to ask you to get rid of the whole stable.' "'What? You want to get rid of our horses? "'I'm not talking of the horses, but of the stable men.' "'How many stable men have you, Monsieur Lachanel?' Six. Six stablemen? Well, that's at least two too many.' Uh, these are positions, Mercier interposed, created and forced upon us by the Undersecretary for Fine Arts. They are filled by protégés of the government, and if I may venture to... I don't care a hang for the government, roared Richard. We don't need more than four stablemen for twelve horses. Eleven, said the head-riding master, correcting him. Twelve, repeated Richard. Eleven, repeated Lachanel. Oh, well, the acting manager told me that you had twelve horses. I did have twelve, but I have only eleven since César was stolen. And Monsieur Lachanel gave himself a great smack on the boot with his whip. Has César been stolen? cried the acting manager. César, the white horse in the Profeta? There are not Two Césars,' said the stud-groom dryly. "'I was ten years at Franconi's, "'and I've seen plenty of horses in my time. "'Well, there are not two Césars, "'and he's been stolen.' "'How? I don't know. Nobody knows. "'That's why I've come to ask you to sack the whole stable. "'What do your stablemen say? "'All sorts of nonsense. "'Some of them accuse the supers, "'the acting manager's doorkeeper.' "'My doorkeeper! I'll answer for him as I would for myself,' protested Mercier. "'But after all, Monsieur Lachanel,' cried Richard, "'you must have some idea.' "'Yes, I have,' Monsieur Lachanel declared. "'I have an idea, and I'll tell you what it is. "'There's no doubt about it in my mind.' "'He walked up to the two managers and whispered, "'It's the Phantom who did the trick.' "'Richard gave a jump.' What, you two, you two! 
How do you mean, I, too? Isn't it natural, after what I saw? What did you see? I saw, as clearly as I now see you, a black shadow riding a white horse that was as like Caesar as two peas. And did you run after them? I did, and I shouted, but they were too fast for me and disappeared in the darkness of the underground gallery. Monsieur Richard rose. Uh, that will do, Monsieur Lachanel. You can go. Um, we will lodge a complaint against the phantom. And sack my stable. Oh, uh, of course. Good morning. Monsieur Lachanel bowed and withdrew. Richard foamed at the mouth. Settle that idiot's account at once, please. He is a friend of the government representatives, Mercier ventured to say, and he takes his vermouth at Tortoni's with La Grenet, Chole, and Pertuisette, the lion-hunter, added Montcharmin. We shall have the whole press against us. He'll tell the story of the phantom, and everybody will be laughing at our expense. We may as well be dead as ridiculous. All right, say no more about it. At that moment the door opened. It must have been deserted by its usual Cerberus, for Madame Giry entered without ceremony, holding a letter in her hand, and said hurriedly, I beg your pardon, excuse me, gentlemen, but I had a letter this morning from the Phantom. He told me to come to you, that you had something to... She did not complete the sentence. She saw Firmin Richard's face, and it was a terrible sight. He seemed ready to burst. He said nothing, he could not speak. But suddenly he acted. First his left arm seized upon the quaint person of Madame Jarry, and made her describe so unexpected a semicircle that she uttered a despairing cry. Next his right foot imprinted its sole on the black taffeta of a skirt which certainly had never before undergone a similar outrage in a similar place. The thing happened so quickly that Madame Jarry, when in the passage, was still quite bewildered and seemed not to understand. But suddenly she understood, and the opera rang with her indignant yells, her violent protests and threats. About the same time, Carlotta, who had a small house of her own in the Rue du Faubourg Saint-Honoré, rang for her maid, who brought her letters to her bed. Among them was an anonymous missive, written in red ink in a hesitating, clumsy hand, which ran, If you appear tonight, you must be prepared for a great misfortune at the moment when you open your mouth to sing, a misfortune worse than death. The letter took away Carlotta's appetite for breakfast. She pushed back her chocolate, sat up in bed, and thought hard. It was not the first letter of the kind which she had received, but she never had one couched in such threatening terms. She thought herself at that time the victim of a thousand jealous attempts and went about saying that she had a secret enemy who had sworn to ruin her. She pretended that a wicked plot was being hatched against her, a cabal which would come to a head one of those days, but she added that she was not the woman to be intimidated. The truth is that if there was a cabal it was led by Carlotta herself against poor Christine, who had no suspicion of it. Carlotta had never forgiven Christine for the triumph which she had achieved when taking her place at a moment's notice. 
when Carlotta heard of the astounding reception bestowed upon her understudy, she was at once cured of an incipient attack of bronchitis and a bad fit of sulking against the management, and lost the slightest inclination to shirk her duties. From that time she worked with all her might to smother her rival. Enlisting the services of influential friends to persuade the managers not to give Christine an opportunity for a fresh triumph. Certain newspapers, which had begun to extol the talent of Christine, now interested themselves only in the fame of Carlotta. Lastly, in the theatre itself, the celebrated but heartless and soulless diva made the most scandalous remarks about Christine and tried to cause her endless minor unpleasantnesses. When Carlotta had finished thinking over the threat contained in the strange letter, she got up. "'We shall see,' she said, adding a few oaths in her native Spanish with a very determined air. The first thing she saw when looking out of her window was a hearse. She was very superstitious, and the hearse and the letter convinced her that she was running the most serious dangers that evening. She collected all her supporters, told them that she was threatened at that evening's performance with a plot organized by Christine Daillet, and declared that they must play a trick upon that chit by filling the house with her Carlotta's admirers. She had no lack of them, had she? She relied upon them to hold themselves prepared for any eventuality and to silence the adversaries if, as she feared, they created a disturbance. Monsieur Richard's private secretary called to ask after the diva's health and returned with the assurance that she was perfectly well and that were she dying, she would sing the part of Marguerite that evening. The secretary urged her, in his chief's name, to commit no imprudence, to stay at home all day and to be careful of drafts, and Carlotta could not help after he had gone comparing this unusual and unexpected advice with the threats contained in the letter. It was five o'clock when the post brought a second anonymous letter in the same hand as the first. It was short and said simply, You have a bad cold. If you are wise, you will see that it is madness to try to sing tonight. Carlotta sneered, shrugged her handsome shoulders, and sang two or three notes to reassure herself. Her friends were faithful to their promise. They were all at the opera that night, but looked round in vain for the fierce conspirators whom they were instructed to suppress. The only unusual thing was the presence of Monsieur Richard and Monsieur Montcharmin in Box 5. Carlotta's friends thought that uh, perhaps the managers had wind on their side of the proposed disturbance, and that they had determined to be in the house so as to stop it then and there. But this was unjustifiable supposition, as the reader knows. Monsieur Richard and Monsieur Montcharmin were thinking of nothing but their phantom. And the performance began. Vain, in vain do I call, through my vigil weary, on creation and its lord. Never reply will break the silence dreary, no sign, no single word. The famous baritone, Carolus Fanta, had hardly finished Dr. Faust's first appeal to the powers of darkness when Monsieur Fumin Richard, who was sitting in the phantom's own chair, the front chair on the right, 
leaned over to his partner and asked him jokingly, "'Well, has the phantom whispered a word in your ear yet?' "'Wait, don't be in such a hurry,' replied Monsieur Armand Montcharmin in the same gay tone. "'The performance has only begun, and you know that the phantom does not usually come until the middle of the first act.' The first act passed without incident, which did not surprise Carlotta's friends, because Marguerite does not sing in this act. As for the managers, they looked at each other when the curtain fell. "'That's one,' said Montcharmin. "'Yes, the phantom is late,' said Firmin Richard. "'It's not a bad house,' said Montcharmin, "'for a house with a curse on it.' Monsieur Richard smiled and pointed to a fat, rather vulgar woman dressed in black, sitting in a stall in the middle of the auditorium with a man in a broadcloth frock-coat on either side of her. "'Who on earth are those?' asked Montcharmin. "'Those, my dear fellow, are my concierge, her husband, and her brother.' Uh, "'Did you give them their tickets?' "'I did. My concierge had never been to the opera. This is the first time.' and as she is now going to come every night, I wanted her to have a good seat before spending her time showing other people to theirs. Montcharmin asked what he meant, and Richard answered that he had persuaded his concierge, in whom he had the greatest confidence, to come and take Madame Giry's place. Yes, he would like to see if with that woman, instead of the old lunatic, Box Five would continue to astonish the natives. "'By the way,' said Montcharmin, "'you know that Mother Giry is going to lodge a complaint against you. "'With whom? The Phantom?' "'The Phantom. Montcharmin had almost forgotten him. "'However, that mysterious person did nothing to bring himself to the memory of the managers, "'and they were just saying so to each other for the second time "'when the door of the box suddenly opened to admit the startled stage manager.' "'What's the matter?' they both asked, amazed at seeing him there at such time. "'It seems there's a plot got up by Christine Daae's friends against Carlotta. "'Carlotta's furious!' "'What on earth?' said Richard, knitting his brows. "'But the curtain rose on the Kermes scene, "'and Richard made a sign to the stage manager to go away. "'When the two were alone again, Montcharmin leaned over to Richard. "'Then Daae has friends?' he asked. Yes, she has. Whom? Richard glanced across at a box of the Grand Tier containing no one but two men. The Comte de Chagny? Yes. He spoke to me in her favor with such warmth that if I had not known him to be Sorelli's friend... Really? Really, said Moncharmin. And who is that pale young man beside him? That's his brother, the Vicomte. He ought to be in his bed. He looks ill. The stage rang with gay song. Red or white liquor, coarse or fine, what can it matter, so we have wine. Students, citizens, soldiers, girls, and matrons whirled light-heartedly before the inn with a figure of Bacchus for a sign. Cybele made her entrance. Christine Daae looked charming in her boy's clothes, and Carlotta's partisans expected to hear her greeted with an ovation, which would have enlightened them as to the intention of her friends. But nothing happened. On the other hand, 
When Marguerite crossed the stage and sang the only two lines allotted her in this second act, No, my lord, not a lady am I, nor yet a beauty, and do not need an arm to help me on my way. Carlotta was received with enthusiastic applause. It was so unexpected and so uncalled for that those who knew nothing about the rumors looked at one another and asked what was happening, and this act also was finished without incident. Then everybody said, of course, it will be during the next act. Some, who seemed to be better informed than the rest, declared that the row would begin with the ballad of the King of Toulay, and rushed to the subscriber's entrance to warn Carlotta. The managers left the box during the entr'acte to find out more about the cabal of which the stage manager had spoken, but they soon returned to their seats, shrugging their shoulders and treating the whole affair as silly. The first thing they saw on entering the box was a box of English sweets on the little shelf of the ledge. Who had put it there? They asked the box-keepers, but none of them knew. Then they went back to the shelf, and next to the box of sweets found an opera-glass. They looked at each other. They had no inclination to laugh. All that Madame Jury had told them returned to their memory, and then, and then they seemed to feel a curious sort of draught around them. They sat down in silence. The scene represented Marguerite's garden, gentle flowers in the dew, be message from me. As she sang these first two lines with her bunch of roses and lilacs in her hand, Christine, raising her head, saw the Vicomte de Chagny in his box, and from that moment her voice seemed less sure, less crystal clear than usual. Something seemed to deaden and dull her singing. What a queer girl she is, said one of Carlotta's friends in the stalls, almost aloud. The other day she was divine. Tonight she's simply bleating. She has no experience, no training. Gentle flowers, lie ye there, and tell her from me. The vicomte put his head under his hands and wept. The count behind him viciously gnawed his moustache, shrugged his shoulders, and frowned. For him, usually so cold and correct to betray his inner feelings like that, by outward signs, the Count must be very angry. He was. He had seen his brother return from a rapid and mysterious journey in an alarming state of health. The explanation that followed was unsatisfactory, and the Count asked Christine Daillet for an appointment. She had the audacity to reply that she could not see either him or his brother. Would she but deign to hear me, and with one smile to cheer me, that little baggage growled the Count, and he wondered what she wanted, what she was hoping for. She was a virtuous girl. She was said to have no friend, no protector of any sort. That angel from the north must be very artful. Raoul, behind the curtain of his hands that veiled his boyish tears, thought only of the letter which he had received on his return to Paris, where Christine, fleeing from Perros like a thief in the night, had arrived before him. My dear little playfellow, you must have the courage not to see me again, not to speak of me again. If you love me just a little, do this for me, 
from me who will never forget you, my dear Raoul. My life depends upon it. Your life depends upon it. Your little Christine. Thunders of applause. Carlotta made her entrance. I wish I could but know who was he that addressed me, if he was noble or at least what his name is. When Marguerite had finished singing the ballad of the King of Toulay, she was loudly cheered, and again when she came to the end of the jewel song, Ah, the joy of past compare, these jewels bright to wear. Thenceforth, certain of herself, certain of her friends in the house, certain of her voice and her success, fearing nothing, Carlotta flung herself into her part without restraint of modesty. She was no longer Marguerite, she was Carmen. She was applauded all the more, and her debut with Faust seemed about to bring her a new success, when suddenly a terrible thing happened. Faust had knelt on one knee, let me gaze on the form below me, while from yonder ether blue, look how the star of Eve, bright and tender, lingers o'er me, to love thy beauty too. And Marguerite replied, Oh, how strange, like a spell does the evening bind me, and a deep languid charm, I feel without alarm, with its melody and wind me, and all my heart subdue. At that moment, at that identical moment, the terrible thing happened. Carlotta croaked like a toad. Quack! There was consternation on Carlotta's face, and consternation on the faces of all the audience. The two managers in their box could not suppress an exclamation of horror. Everyone felt that the thing was not natural, that there was witchcraft behind it. That toad smelt of brimstone. Poor, wretched, despairing, crushed Carlotta. The uproar in the house was indescribable. If the thing had happened to anyone but Carlotta, she would have been hooted. But everyone knew how perfect an instrument her voice was, and there was no display of anger, but only of horror and dismay, the sort of dismay which men would have felt if they had witnessed the catastrophe that broke the arms of the Venus de Milo. And even then they would have seen and understood, but here that toad was incomprehensible. So much so that after some seconds spent in asking herself if she had really heard that note, that sound, that infernal noise issue from her throat, she tried to persuade herself that it was not so, that she was the victim of an illusion, an illusion of the ear, and not of an act of treachery on the part of her voice. Meanwhile, in Box 5, Montcharmin and Richard had turned very pale. This extraordinary and inexplicable incident filled them with a dread which was the more mysterious inasmuch as for some little while they had fallen within the direct influence of the phantom. They had felt his breath. Montcharmin's hair stood on end. Richard wiped the perspiration from his forehead. Yes, the phantom was there, around them, behind them, beside them. They felt his presence without seeing him. They heard his breath close, close, close to them. They were sure that there were three people in the box. They trembled. They thought of running away. They dared not. They dared not make a movement or exchange a word that would have told the phantom that they knew that he was there. What was going to happen? This happened. Rock! Their joint exclamation of horror was heard all over the house. 
they felt that they were smarting under the phantom's attacks. Leaning over the edge of their box, they stared at Carlotta as though they did not recognize her. That infernal girl must have given the signal for some catastrophe. Ah, they were waiting for the catastrophe. The phantom had told them it would come. The house had a curse upon it. The two managers gasped and panted under the weight of the catastrophe. Richard's stifled voice was heard calling to Carlotta, Well, go on. No, Carlotta did not go on. Bravely, heroically, she started afresh on the fatal line at the end of which the toad had appeared. An awful silence succeeded the uproar. Carlotta's voice alone once more filled the resounding house. I feel without alarm. The audience also felt, but not without alarm. I feel without alarm. I feel without alarm. Grok! With its melody and wine me, grok! And all my hearts of grok! The toad also had started afresh. The house broke into a wild tumult. The two managers collapsed in their chairs and dared not even turn round. They had not the strength. The phantom was chuckling behind their backs, and at last they distinctly heard his voice in their right ears, the impossible voice, the mouthless voice, saying, Her singing tonight could bring the chandelier down. With one accord, they raised their eyes to the ceiling and uttered a terrible cry. The chandelier, the immense mass of the chandelier was slipping down, coming toward them at the call of that fiendish voice. Released from its hook, it plunged from the ceiling and came smashing into the middle of the stalls. Amid a thousand shouts of terror, a wild rush for the doors followed. The papers of the day state that there were numbers wounded and one killed. The chandelier had crashed down upon the head of the wretched woman who had come to the opera for the first time in her life, the one whom Monsieur Richard had appointed to succeed Madame Giry, the phantom's box-keeper, in her functions. She died on the spot, and the next morning a newspaper appeared with this heading, Two Hundred Kilos on the Head of a Concierge. That was her sole epitaph. 